I must also vote guilty as charged. And you, Captain? Guilty as charged. Bridge to all decks. Time now for a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Nance. And I'm Steve Morris. And I'm very happy that we're continuing our exploration of the menagerie with part two. And I'm even happier to welcome back to Enterprise Incidents actor, voiceover artist, podcaster extraordinaire, <laughs> movie critic, and my very, very good friend and partner on the Cinephiles, John Roca. Welcome back to Enterprise Incidents. Thank you. And you forgot... Hardcore Star Trek enthusiast. That is number one since birth. So I'm so excited uh, to be back to talk about this incredible two-parter from the first season, The Menagerie. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, uh, Steve and Scott, for having me back. Well, the thing about this episode is that this is going to be the only two-parter that we're going to have on Enterprise Incidents because it's the only two-parter that the original series had. It wasn't always planned that way. There was supposed to be another two-part episode that was supposed to happen earlier in the first season at the end of the naked time when the Enterprise goes back in time after trying to get away from planet Psi 2000. They're supposed to slingshot away from the planet and go back in time to the Earth of the 1960s, which would have effectively kicked off part two, which turned out to be tomorrow is yesterday. But you know what? That's okay because it all worked out. The Naked Time is a great one-part episode. Tomorrow's Yesterday is a great one-part episode that I cannot wait to talk about when we get to it on Enterprise Incidents. But because we went through all of the details regarding the production and the development of the menagerie as a whole, we can kind of just cut to the chase here and jump right into our deep dive play-by-play of part two of the Menagerie. For those of you who are listening to part two of Enterprise Incidents before you listen to part one, well, you got a lot of catching up to do. Make sure you listen to part one of Enterprise Incidents because there is a whole great story about how the Menagerie came to be. A lot of it was creative. Some of it was practical. Some of it was pride and ego on the part of its of its creator, Gene Roddenberry, to show as much of the cage, which cost more than $600,000 to make as he could. And we're going to see most of the cage now in part two of the menagerie. And because of that, the director who is credited with the menagerie is actually Robert Butler. Robert Butler directed the cage. But Robert Butler did not direct the envelope portion of the the newer footage in the menagerie. That went to Mark Daniels. But because most of the footage in part one was the new footage. So Mark Daniels got credit for directing part one of the the menagerie. But because most of the footage in part two is actually the cage footage that Robert Butler directed, he is the one who got the credit for directing part two. And the irony is that – You would think that this director, Robert Butler, who basically directed the very first Star Trek episode ever made, you know, would look back on Star Trek and what it created with the fans and the the other shows and the movies and be like, yeah, I started that. But he was quoted as saying, uh, you know, I'm not quoting his exact quote, but he actually uh, made comments later on that he just didn't get Star Trek. He thought it was too square jawed and heroic and he knows it has fans and, you know, good luck to them. It's it's such an interesting thing that all of these creators had to reckon with this thing that maybe they worked a week or two on or even just a day or two that ends up being the most 
important and famous thing they ever worked on. Hmm. And Star Trek certainly has that legacy. Um, we start off at a teaser. And you know, Scott, I've been saying something throughout this whole series about how theatrical and non-realistic Star Trek can be sometime. This teaser is the perfect example because it opens with this very abstract shot of Captain Kirk and then the camera pans back to reveal Spock and both Kirk and Spock are facing forward and then the camera pulls back even farther to Commodore Mendez profile looking right to left. How do you plead to the charge of unlawfully taking command of this starship? Yodi, of sabotaging the computers of this vessel and locking it on a course for planet Talos IV. Yoti. And it is so not in the real world in any way. And all of this gets us to is to explain how we got there. Yeah, but don't you like that? I, I mean, love it. Don't you, don't, I absolutely I, love it. I think it's great. I, I mean, instead of just starting the teaser with last week on Star Trek and just showing clips, which I mean, obviously this this teaser definitely does show some some uh, uh, you know last week on Star Trek clips, but the way that it's shot, it's not even like they're back in the in the in the uh, briefing room during the hearing. Like it's it's black. It's completely black background, and like you said, the way they're standing there, it's a very stylized way. Totally. To direct this teaser, and I think that it is a it's a great way to direct the teaser. And let me tell you something: when I was watching the Menagerie for the first time, because they they aired it as a TV movie, they never showed the teaser. Oh, right. When they started showing part two, you know, they got to the end of uh, Act Four on part one, took a commercial break, and they just came back. With the captain's log that kicks off Act One of Part Two, so Makes I never, sense. I never saw the teaser for the Menagerie mm. until the uh, VHS or mm. you know actually the Betamax version came out <laughs> <laughs> in 1985, and I remember like you know even by that stage of my life I was I think I was. Uh, 16 years old. Uh, and I was still seeing something new from Star Trek, the original series that I had never seen before. So I thought that was really cool. John, we've been talking about this for a long time. Yeah. What do you think about the theatricality, the time when Star Trek is not actually just realistic? Mm -hmm. I mean, some of the moments where it, like they pan, they close up uh, or the turns and the slow uh, and the quick uh, close up. Is that what you mean? Well, and some of the, the some of the sets are very sort of abstract, oh. and some of the you know, we talked about it with Enemy Within, where Kirk's mm -hmm. acting is so big, and the the mm -hmm. way it's filmed is very much not just straight up realism. Right, it's theatrical. I think this is one of the gifts of discovering Star Trek as a young kid, because like you're not looking for Oscar winning performances right. when you're watching these shows. So for me, when I go back and watch them now, it's nostalgia. So the nostalgia kind of covers up all of that and kind of allows me to enjoy it. Uh, whereas other films or other shows, you might say, oh, they look dated. There's a certain kind of uh, place that this occupies that it does that in my mind, I can't put that kind of criticism on it. Um, and I enjoy that. And I'm sure a lot of British people would say that about old Doctor Who, that there's it looks that's even more cheesy, even less budget. But they have a, they have a special place in their heart for some of those sets and some of those acting performances from the early Doctor Who episodes. And that's why you cast the way you do. So the charm of the actors come through no matter mm. what they're doing, their essence. And that keeps you enjoying uh, the show, even when you watch it 40, 50 years later. But, you know, when you look at the look of Star Trek, mm. there's no other show 
that looks like the original series. Yes, yeah, bright. Yeah. Certainly nothing before it, because most of what came before it was actually in black and white. Right. And that brought us to Star Trek, which was one of the first series to be done in color. Mm-hmm. And as a result, the producers, Desilu, they were told to use as many of the bright primary colors as they could, which is why you have like the uniforms, which really stick out. But also, John, I have talked about this cinematographer Hmm. over and over again because his contribution, his impact on Star Trek cannot be overstated. It's Hmm. Jerry Finnerman. Hmm. His lighting on especially the first, uh, the first season and the first two seasons of the original series, um, which was most of what he did, was just so beautiful. It was yeah. like every single scene was shot and filmed like a work of art. And I just think that that's one of the reasons why the original series really holds up mm-hmm. is because it doesn't look cheesy. It actually looks beautiful. Yeah, and just to be fair to both sides, I think the men are shot really well as well. Very attra- like a, we're three straight dudes, so we're looking at the women. But I'm sure there are women <laughs> and men who are looking at the men and the tight clothes. I mean, Jeffrey Hunter's butt is in some tight black pants <laughs> for wow. a majority of the. Let me just put that out there. It's it, when he's running into the um uh, running into the the room there to go down the elevator to go down. You can see like almost his underwear through his through his pants there because the, the way <laughs> I never well, noticed the, that the way. <laughs> the light hits his butt because of how the HD uh, remastered uh, ones look you can see completely uh, his uh, whatever he's wearing there and running into the so uh, there is a kind of um, way that it's shot that is sexy sci-fi for sure and that's great do you know what I'm saying and and yes maybe you're objectifying a little bit but there's other stuff going on that isn't about the objectification of these people I just have this image now of the guys developing HD technology going, you know, someday they're really going to see some old actors' butts really clearly. (laughs) This is going to be great. (laughs) Nothing will be able to be hid. (laughs) In Act 1, we come back to the trial, and we basically, and this is going to be most of this episode, is little bit in the trial world, and then we immediately go into the world of the cage, and that is where Captain Pike is. He's in the cage behind the glass wall, and he has his first interactions with the Keeper. It appears, Magistrate, that the intelligence of the specimen is shockingly limited. This is no surprise since his vessel was baited here so easily with a simulated message. This is where I enjoy sci-fi, and I think all of us enjoy sci-fi, right? It's the conversation about principles about what's happening this idea of this person has captured you and they are monitoring you like some kind of zoo animal or experiment and what's it like as a human being to be on the other side of that because we've done that for centuries so i like the conversations they're having and and it's really interesting to watch jeffrey hunter reacting to the talosian the head talosian uh, who is like guessing the everything the keeper yeah who's guessing everything he's going to do before he does it or as he's doing it next frustrated into a need to display physical prowess the creature will throw himself against the transparency and having that kind of remove some of your agency how do you react to that as a human being so i love this is where sci-fi to me is always the most fascinating in these kinds of conversations and interactions well, you're also a- getting a you're also getting a really good look at the keeper mm-hmm. at the makeup mm-hmm. for sure and the wardrobe and like you pointed out in the previous episode John the it is just fantastic. Oh. It's among the of the very best mm-hmm. makeup work that that the original series ever had. I agreed. 
What, what, one of the things that just occurred to me is that in almost all the Star Trek episodes we've covered, things start out in a relatively benign way and then become more and more serious until we're in a desperate mm. situation. And that's where No Man Has Gone Before, that's Corbinite, that's Charlie X, that's Miri, that's all of them. This is not that. This is almost from the beginning. We put our main character in an, an entirely hopeless situation. Mm. He is trapped, totally outmatched doesn't know what's going on, literally a prisoner in a cage, and that is very different. Our tests indicate the planet's surface without considerably more vegetation or some animals, simply too barren to support life. So we just thought we saw survivors there, Mr. Spock. Exactly. An illusion. And we're in the briefing room with Mr. Spock, but we're also in the briefing room with Dr. Boyce, with mm. Lieutenant Tyler, and with number one. This is a scene that we would see time and time again throughout the original series, obviously with Kirk and Spock and McCoy and Scotty and everybody else. And I was thinking about the scene in The Naked Time when they're in the briefing room trying to determine like what could have caused the uh, the, 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 the base on the planet to freeze up and for everyone to, to die in such an unusual way. So when I was watching The Menagerie, I was really kind of thinking, wow, they really had this this, this whole thing down from the beginning, like they knew exactly what they wanted a briefing room scene to look like, mm -hmm. that even when they switched the characters, it still worked. But also I started thinking, well, how would the naked time have looked with Captain Pike and Dr. Boyce and number one, you know, like with that crew analyzing a situation episode after episode, uh, it, it just made me wonder like, what if, how that dynamic would have played out, how it would have looked, how it would have felt, how it would have affected decisions that were made and the way things were written because they would be writing to characters that were very, very differently. But still, you have to admire, you absolutely have to admire uh, Gene Roddenberry and the writing of that scene and, of course, uh, Robert Butler's direction of that scene for, for just like really, really nailing that so perfectly from, from the very beginning. I read most strongly a recent death struggle in which it fought to protect its life. We will begin with this. And then Pike suddenly isn't in the cage. He's on some planet. There's a castle in the distance. And there is Vina. Come on. We must hide ourselves. This is Rigel 7. What do you think, John, about this as an action sequence? Yeah, well, I mean, it's obviously manufactured so that he can be challenged. And although Vina is the one telling him the real, it, it happens for real. It happens for real. It's all everything that happens here is real. Uh, there is this feeling of this is about uh, motivating his testosterone, his manhood, uh, and uh, having him overcome this dude uh, is a way to kind of inspire him to get caught up in that moment and perhaps be even more connected to Vina in protecting her, you know, especially because he doesn't really unleash the fury until the guy attacks her. But as you're watching him with 2021 20, eyes, like you can see the staged choreography yeah. of the fight sequence. So Steve, the juxtaposition between what we talked about in the first part, where you enjoyed Spock's fight with the dude in the computer room. Right, right. This is not that good because you can That's see him, the larger dude, pausing on the spins before he swings and he makes these over pro wrestling type size over swings in moments that uh, don't feel as threatening as they would like to think they I, would. I, I totally agree. You know what the thing that occurred to me? I mean, obviously the whole theme of the cage is fantasy, mm -hmm. is what are the dreams and fantasies that live in your mind? And, and it occurred to me watching it this time, man, this is so the classic nerdy kid fantasy 
I'm going to be suddenly in a situation and the beautiful girl that maybe I would never has a chance with is getting, you know, attacked by the bully. And I'm going to stand up to the bully mm. and defeat him and save the girl. And then she's going to like me. I mean, that is as classic fantasy as you can possibly get. Yeah. And, yeah. and by the way, John, y- you know, when Steve asked you that question, he definitely had a motive uh, because <laughs> he always when, does. We, when we discussed this uh, on the very first episode, because, you know, we did the cage first. Right. I remember he said he did not like the way that scene played out. So <laughs> so I could tell I could tell right away as soon as he asked that question, he was like, oh, here we go. Yeah. He's uh, he's uh, throwing the hook in the lung. Let's see if yep. John takes the bait. Now, I well, hear both your points, but. Uh-huh. None of that ever bothered me, and I didn't notice it. Certainly didn't notice it then, and I, I, I don't notice it now. I mean, even after, even at well, maybe now I notice it a little bit after Steve talked about it. But I love this scene for for a number of reasons. For one thing, when the dissolve happens and the the keeper uh, presents the illusion of Rigel Seven, the music that kicks in, that that gorgeous score. Mm-hmm from Alexander Courage, that is, uh, it's beautiful. And it, it is uh, establishing this alien world and the matte painting of the temple. Even by 2021 standards, that is a gorgeous, gorgeous painting. And they used it again in the third season episode, uh, Requiem for Methuselah. And when Vina is running off back to the to the temple and, you know, Pike goes after her, when the warrior breaks in, and yeah, the warrior does look cheesy, like, mm-hmm. you know, the crooked teeth and the, the grunting and the growling. Uh, yeah, it is definitely staged and choreographed in a, in a way that maybe it doesn't hold up, but I still, I still enjoy and appreciate it for what it is. And, mm-hmm. you know, getting some, you're getting to see something that, you know, you never saw Captain Pike, Jeffrey Hunter, do again, which is really do an action scene. I mean, yeah. how would, I mean, some of the best scenes with Kirk are the fight scenes. How would, mm. how would Pike have uh, fought uh, Khan in Space Seed, even even with <laughs> the obvious stuntmen, or uh, or Ben Finney in Court Martial, or or uh, Finnegan in, Sh- yeah. in Shore Leave. How would Captain Pike have? Uh, how would Jeffrey Hunter have been during those scenes? It's a lot of stuff about the menagerie, watching these scenes from the cage, that make you go. I wonder what this show would have looked like. Well, I, you know, something Steve mentioned in the last part, right? He said you you write to the actors that you get. I don't think either this or in a cinephile, you said a writer once they realize what actors are going to be part of their cast, they write to those actors' strengths. I don't think we have a con episode with Jeffrey Hunter. I don't think we have a half of those episodes you're speaking about, uh, uh, Scott, or any of them possibly, because Hunter is not that kind of actor in terms of his portrayal of the captain. So I can't imagine Hunter going, God, what are you doing here? Like It just would be completely different in his approach. So you'd have to write a villain that makes sense for um, for Hunter, which is why I think the Telosians are great kind of antagonists, not villains necessarily, antagonists for Hunter because that's that fits for what he's doing. Whereas if you had Khan, I think Khan would absolutely run rings around Captain Pike, in at least this version of it, because he has so much questions about himself. Whereas with Shatner, it's more of a, 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 a more of a uh, how can I say organic primal kind of back and forth. Do you know what I'm saying? I think that is a fabulous point. And one of the things you see in all of the great villain situations is great villains match up with their hero. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Is that there's a reason that Joker is probably the greatest villain in comic books is that he's Mm. not a Superman villain. Right. He's not a Flash villain. He's a Batman villain. Is that there is something that like Kirk's 
particular swagger, his particular arrogance is something that makes Khan a perfect foe for him. Yeah. You know, and, and so I think that's a really, really interesting point. Okay, so you say you say arrogance, I say confidence. <laughs> uh, you know, there is a there is a confidence to Kirk that has you know, I follow this guy into an active volcano, you yeah, know, yeah. is how much confidence he exudes. Yeah. And I mean, there's an arrogance to it, too. Like, I mean, Yang, you, you know, you see it sometimes like in Conscience of the King when Spock says, how did you know this lady was coming aboard? And he goes, I'm the captain, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I do think that who knows, maybe Jeffrey Hunter, you know, once they he got the feel for it, once he he hit his stride, maybe Jeffrey Hunter would have dialed it up. But all these maybes and what ifs. Yeah. Uh, I think we lucked out with Shatner. I think we lucked yeah. out oh, that yeah. Jeffrey Hunter did not, did not want to do Star Trek and that they, that they went after Jack Lord and then they went after Lloyd Bridges uh, to be the, to be the new captain of the mm -hmm. enterprise. And when they got Shatner, they just, they just lucked the hell out because from act one, scene one, you know, Kirk was the role he was born to play. Right. Right. So, after uh, Vina and Pike get returned to the cage, we go back to the trial and the re and the monitor has stopped showing the video. And the reason is, is that Captain Pike is fatigued. Mm. And this is a key, I think this is a key piece of, let's say, evidence that the Telosians care about Captain Pike. Mm -hmm. And when the Commodore pushes Spock, like, well, why? If you'll be patient, sir, the answers to your question. You're forgetting you're on trial, Spock. You will answer all questions put to you. My answer to your question would be quite unbelievable, sir. I regret we'll have to wait and see it there. What he is pointing out is that the illusions feel real. He's setting up yeah. why he wants to be bringing Pike back to the Telosians. And look at Pike's state now with mm -hmm. the, the wheelchair. And he, he can't even talk. You know, he's yeah. just got a flashing light to say yes or no. And that is it. He's a prisoner within himself. So I think that I think it's good that they take these breaks that make sense to the plot in an effort yeah. to uh, sort of be like, this is, you know, lead up to why I'm doing this. It builds the delay with the audience, too. Like, oh, we get to take a moment to like absorb what we just saw process it and then move forward uh when they start showing the footage again and also i love the double meaning of the cage right the cage is what he's in in the pilot and the cage is what he's in now in the menagerie with his body the cage of his body the cage of the wheelchair that is another version of the cage so these connective tissues here with these two episodes um in essence uh, melded together is brilliant that is a brilliant depiction, and I never thought about that, but you're right. The cage isn't just what Pike is trapped in hmm. on Talos Four. The cage is what he is trapped in within himself now yeah. because of, of, of the accident. That's a great way to put it, John. I 100% agree. I think it's a great point. Um, here's my – this is where I – I feel like the envelope portion is just not as strong as I wish it could be. And it's funny, John, when you and I did the matrix years ago on the yeah. cinephiles, um, one of the things I brought up is just the famous line. It's in all the trailers of no one can tell you what the matrix is. You know, <laughs> you, the only choice you have is it's the true. pill. You got to take the pill. And I, and yep. at the time I'm like, why? Why can't you say, listen, Neo, you're living in a simulation. You're actually in this pod. This thing is hooked <laughs> up to the back of your head. That's what, why can no one tell you that? And I feel the same way here. It's like at this point, the Telosians are controlling the ship. Why can't Spock just say, listen, 
this is what we want to do. And the reason is, is yeah. because like the matrix thing, it's not dramatic. What's dramatic is to withhold information. But mm -hmm. here's my, here's my other thought about this. If the whole point is that really the Telosians are going to be nice to Captain Pike and take good care of him because they actually care about him. Why are they showing some of the horrible things that they do to him and Vina, which they're going to do in the next sequence? Like, and the reason is, is because Gene Roddenberry wanted to show his whole pilot, not because right. this all actually tracks and fits together that well. Hmm. That's my feeling. You're wondering why the Telosians are showing this? Well, I, th I think Pike knows they're showing it for effect for Kirk. Um, the second Pike has that one beep to allow it to continue, Pike is now complicit in the situation with Spock. And so because he's complicit and he understands what Spock's going to do because he tried to stop him from doing this, he knows exactly what Spock's going to do, This him looking at this footage isn't going to affect him in a negative way. Um, and he understands it's being done so that Kirk gets a bigger, broader view of what's happening here. Well, let me put forth this question and mm -hmm. maybe we'll address it sort of at the end. Well, if I were going to try to convince somebody to stay with me, mm -hmm. I would withhold the, the footage of me torturing them. That's the first thing. It doesn't make sense for the Telosians to show that part of it. And here, but here's actually the bigger question. And, and I'll just, we can wait till we get to the end to address it. Mm -hmm. But the basic idea that makes this okay, that Pike is going to stay with the Telosians is that they've changed. Mm -hmm. Because they're villains in the in the, the episode, The Cage. Right, yes, right. they convinced them to, to leave, but only by suicide. And other mm -hmm. than that, we've they've had no problems torturing Vina for decades. Right. You know, so like so do we and this is the question. And that's why I say we could talk about it at the end. Do we actually feel that the Telosians are, have changed and are going to take good care of Captain Pike? At the well, end of this I'm, I'm going to say what we see happen in the end of the, the menagerie on Talos 4 is different from what we see happen at the end yes, of the cage true. on Talos 4. Mm, but right. uh, even by the end of the cage in its original form, you see that there is an epiphany that happens within the keeper that causes the keeper to become more compassionate towards Pike mm. and Vina. So I think even at that point, there was a, an, uh, something implanted in the Telosians to be more compassionate towards humans, which, and, and just more compassionate in general, which is what led to the agreement that even took place for Spock to bring Pike to Taos for. Right. Like they had, to, they had to have been in touch and talked about it. And that must have happened because the Telosians, even back 13 years ago, learned something about humanity, learned something about, about themselves, and have been evolving in that way ever since. I think that's why them showing this stuff is not a big deal because Pike knows what the end is. In the end, they came to a resolution. He came to a, an understanding that they didn't know what they were doing with a human being. They were trying to figure out how to make the human being, how to do all these kinds of stuff. And like, would you say if you were a scientist, would you say if you watched the scientist torture, not torture, but like experiment on a mouse, if you saw from the mouse's point of view, the mouse would hate the human being, but the human being might be your friend and is trying to figure out something to help the species overall. Uh, so is the human being a villain as a scientist because they're trying to experiment on this on the mice to help the overall populace or to understand the mice uh, or what have you? Are they 
Phil, like you, you like we, let's go to the shark thing, Steve. Like you, you've spent a lot of time with sharks, and they're tagging these sharks. Is this something they want to be tagged? Do, does the shark look at it and go, "Don't put that on me"? Does does the shark feel that way? We don't know. But if the shark could talk and they said that, how would you look at the like? Would your point of view change about it? That's that's basically what I'm getting at. I get that it could look like the Tolutions are torturing, but they're trying to figure out. Remember, they built her from scratch too, and they had no game plan. Bloopers. So <laughs> several things, several things about this. The the first is if I'm a mouse and I have been tortured by some scientists or my friend has been tortured by some scientists, those scientists are evil. That's there's no question in my mind. If I'm a mouse, okay. um, that's that feels pretty obvious. And if the scientist said, no, no, come back this time. Even though I'm going to create all sorts of illusions, I promise I'm going to be cool. I would have some trepidation. Now, if I were a mouse that was trapped in a body that I couldn't control, then maybe I would go, hey, maybe it's w- worth a shot because I don't have anything now. I'm not saying that's not motivatable. As far as the the sharks, this is a complicated issue that has gradations. Right. So there have been animal experiments in the past that are just clearly torture. I mean, that, and, and right. to the point of where literally they're going, what is the pain tolerance of this chimpanzee? At what point will its heart give out? I mean, there, there are all sorts of experiments that are just heinous. Yeah. Um, and the ones with, and I know there are different kinds of tags. So there's some tags that are relatively small. There's not a lot of nerve endings in the, in the fin. And mm-hmm. so they, they, and it has no effect on them as they're moving. Mm-hmm. There's some tags where they actually pull a great white shark out of the water and are pouring water, seawater through its gills so it can stay alive. But because the shark's body is uh, not made of mostly bone, it's cartilage, the body is like collapsing. And mm-hmm. it takes, and they drill a hole with a drill through the fin to insert this big tag. Mm-hmm. That seems pretty damn terrible. Yeah. And wow. that's none of the scientists I worked with use that kind of tag. Mm-hmm. It's, but, but then the other thing about it, and this is what the scientists would tell you is that sharks are uh, hunted. You know, it's like a hundred million sharks killed a year. There's not a lot of protections for them. They're really important animals in the ocean. And the more scientists can find out about them, the more sympathy they can get. So even though they might be hurting that individual shark, we're trying to save sharks in general. Right. So I know that was obviously a digression, mm. but you know, this is, this is enterprise incidents. This is what That's we're what really we do. all about. We digress. <laughs> is there any way I can keep them from probing my mind and from using my thoughts against me? You're a fool. Since you're not real, there's not much point in continuing this conversation, is there? For anyone who ever wondered why the cage didn't sell, this is why right here. Talking about controlling, you know, using illusions, you know, so that the Tolosians can live through them. Where is the action adventure in that? Like, and you're not even getting to the point where the Tolosians wanted Pike and Vena to reproduce and create a whole race of slaves. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're wondering why NBC said, nah, let's try that again and let's pump up the action and pump up the energy. Well, this is as great a scene as it is and as uh, terrific as Susan Oliver is holding her, holding her own with Jeffrey Hunter and as you know commanding, so to speak, as Jeffrey Hunter is as Pike, you absolutely see why right here why this was just just uh, a little too cerebral for the the taste of NBC. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and so the thing that came up, and we'll we'll, we'll address it. And I'm curious to hear what John's thought are. My feeling is it's too damn sexual. I mean, there's some. 
there's some kind of filthy stuff that the, particularly the cage, even more than the menagerie gets into. Um, and this scene ends with, you know, she gives him some information and then it ends with her screaming, please don't punish me. And she disappears, leaving the dress behind. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. John, mm -hmm. you're Captain Pike. You're in this cage right now. How are you feeling about this situation? Uh, well, clearly how he felt. You know, he's he's concerned about her. He's worried about the situation. Um, and what, how he can save her because the prime directive is essentially, right, not to mess with the uh, function of a planet, the function of a species. But when you see a human being in peril, your natural instinct is there to save the human being. So... I think he's trying to negotiate both situations. Like, how do I save her and how do I stop them from torturing her and keeping me in the cage? But I ask you guys this, is this done on purpose by the Telosians? And I thought about this as I was watching it this time. When she's screaming and like, oh, I can't, is that done for effect? Are they torturing her to see what his reaction to her reacting this way is going to be because later she complains they don't give him give her enough time when they bring other women into the situation so it's an interesting really kind of messed up relationship she has and i think there's pretty probably a plenty of psychiatrists psychologists who look at the whole idea of the stockholm syndrome situation and also a woman being kept by these older creatures and what that would feel like or species rather what that whole weird kind of complex relationship would be so there's a lot to explore here than what we're just seeing 100 percent, john i think it's done for mm -hmm. effect and the the Telosians even say we're going to give him something to protect this time and then later on uh when he's talking to them he says yeah. they say oh yeah now a feeling of protection excellent they are 100 percent making him feel protective over the girl by punishing her by putting her in difficult situations totally yeah and now we have a very brief and fairly useless cut back to the trial. And then we have the next scene in the cage where he wakes up and refuses to drink the food that they've given him. You overlook the unpleasant alternative of punishment. And then he is essentially in hell. This scared the crap out of me when I was a kid. <laughs> Stares the crap out of me now. <laughs> and the other thing that he discovers when they let him back and he does acquiesce into eating whatever this food is, is he out of nowhere attacks the wall and the keeper is startled. Mm -hmm. And this is where he learns a key lesson. They, they can't read through primitive emotions. Yeah. Let's go on a picnic. <laughs> I think this is the central scene to the show. I also think it's interesting. Some of the things that are cut out here is that we're in one of the fantasies that Pike talked about in the scene with a doctor, which is with his horses, except now he has Vina as his wife on a picnic. The horse is the one that he remembers. The keepers actually put sugar in his pocket because they think of everything. And she is trying to create a world of this is our marriage. This could be our life. You can even stay if you want. But we're not here, neither of us. We're in a menagerie, a cage. No! What's really interesting with the picnic scene, I think, is so, is what they cut. Because this is mm -hmm. one of the few places where they genuinely changed some of the things that are in the cage. One of them is that as she's trying to be the wife and he's not playing along, she talks about, remember the headaches that I get. You know, mm. I'm getting those headaches again. Well, that to me is remember that I could be tortured if you don't play along with this thing. 
Mm-hmm. They also cut out where um, he actually references the scene with the doctor and that he's now getting this idea of we have to go out and fight and skin knees and we're not supposed to have, which is a classic Star Trek theme. Mm-hmm. And I think it's I think it's really interesting that those are things they chose to cut out. You know, Pike doesn't want to be in an illusion at all, you know, whether yeah. it's being on a picnic back at home with Tango and the sugar in his uh, jacket yeah. or and and of course, Vina. Uh, but he also doesn't want to be uh, an Orion slave trader which is, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, that image of Susan Oliver covered in green makeup, courtesy of the great Fred Phillips, who did the makeup for for the cage in the original series. Mm-hmm. First of all, mm-hmm. I have to say Susan Oliver's performance in this entire episode of the cage is just fantastic. She's yeah. so committed and there's a lot of range there. And, the, you know, the, the music, you know, that music that they actually did reuse – when when they went to the second season for Wolf in the Fold, uh, that great classic music of the dance scene, mm-hmm. and uh, Susan Oliver was just terrific, in, in especially in this portion, looking so sensual while mm. covered in green makeup, and that sensuality uh, it was irresistible for Pike. Yeah. And the other thing that's interesting is that when we go to the Orion Slave Girl sequence in the cage, we stay there, and it's all as one sequence. And here mm-hmm. we started see the Orion slave girl, we realize it's Vina, and then we go back to the trial. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really interesting choice. Why do you think they choose to cut out in the middle of it? Uh, well, I think for two reasons. For one, to kind of remind you that you are watching this as part of a trial. Mm. And also, maybe there's a little bit of uh, exposition here in some ways where they're just trying to make sure that people who were watching, you know, again, everybody was warned, oh, the cage is too cerebral. So now we're using everything from the cage <laughs> in the menagerie. You know, let's make sure that people get what's going on here. I think that was part. It was a more of a, a, of a narrative choice to uh, make sure that people were following along uh, instead of a, a creative one. I think they're, I mean, A, they're aiming for an act break. So that's part of it. Like one of the things, and and I actually think this is something I really learned from Star Trek, is that act breaks in TV give writers destinations. Is Mm. that, you know, I need to build to a moment to end the act. So that creates a certain rhythm in television that doesn't exist in film. Mm Mm-hmm. This happens to be, in my opinion, a fairly weak act break. But the the other thing I think they're doing is they're subtly changing the nature of what's going on. Because what Mendez says about the Orion slave girl is he says, They're like animals, vicious, seductive. They say no human male can resist them. What that does is it makes Pike more passive in the sense that this is a situation he's being put into that he's going to have trouble resisting, not as much a fantasy that he wants. It's mm-hmm. a different framing. And mm-hmm. when we come back in Act 3 to the Orion Slave Girl, we also hear Kirk say, Strange evidence from the past. How the Telosians tempted Captain Pike with the Earth Woman they held in captivity. And as she appeared to him in many forms, each more exciting than the last, Pike was beginning to weaken. That's different from what's happening in the cage. This really frames it as this thing that is happening to Pike. Mm-hmm. Ra- and, and, and this is the key one. There was a line that's in the cage that is not in the menagerie. And I think it is 
really key. And that line is, they're talking about the Orion slave girls. And one of the scummy guys that he's sitting with Pike says, funny how they are on this planet. They actually like being taken advantage of. Mm. And and that line is removed in the menagerie. And the, what I think this, and that, and this is why I go like cutting in out in the middle of the Orion slave gore girl, describing her as something that no man can resist and taking out this line changes it from Pike has fantasies of essentially rape fantasies or taking advantage or owning slaves mm-hmm. to Pike is put in a situation with this alien species that he's not going to be able to resist. Those are very, very different in my mm. opinion. Yeah. I was, I had forgotten that he had wanted to be a slave trader. Like in my mind, I'm like, yeah. how do you talk about it so casually with the doctor? And so that shows you like, Star Trek had a different point of view when it shot this pilot than what they ended up becoming when they finally went forward with uh, William Shatner in the lead as as Kirk. This idea that he wouldn't even consider that as a job, you know, to even have a conversation about, for God's sakes. And especially what? This is the early 60s, mid-60s, when this is, when this is uh, being shot as a pilot. So it seems like an even worse time to be even considering that situation. Yeah, they, they, shot, they shot the cage... Uh, uh, the first day of shooting on the cage was November 27th, 1964. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's really early. And mm-hmm. and uh, but by those standards or today's standards, yeah. uh, it was definitely a good move for them to take that portion of the dialogue <laughs> out yes. of the menagerie, because, it, it, you know, even in the mid 60s, it is just. You know, whoa, hang on. Yeah, it's very weird. Yeah. Right. right. So, and we end up just, and I actually think that the way this is handled and the music and sound design is better in the menagerie of him getting up and leaving and then ending up in the cave with Vina and the door has disappeared. I think it's, I think structurally it's done a lot better. And then what's about to happen is that the crew of the Enterprise is going to try to beam down and that the only people that end up beaming down are the women. The women! The women! The women! (laughs) Here's the thing I was thinking about this time. If they don't beam down, does Pike have sex with Vina as the Orion slave girl? Uh, No. I mean, Mm. if they, I mean. I don't know. Well, well, okay, because I see what you're saying. Because when they beam down, something was happening. Yeah. Yeah, There's a, a moment where, you know, in the illusion that. Vina has her arms wrapped around Pike. She's like, she's like kind of just measuring him, mm-hmm. you know, so to speak. And then the women show up and she's like, no, let me finish. Yeah. So does she finish? And does Pike let her finish? That's a great question. That is a great question. Should yeah. we pose that to yeah, our- Yeah, sure. Well, and particularly with the line that no man can resist them and Pike was beginning to weaken. Those That's how it's set up here, which is different mm-hmm. from in the cage. So given what we know and given the way that Pike turns to Vina in the moment he sees her as the Orion slave girl in the cage and the moment we see in the actual cage with Vina and her arms around Pike when the women show up, if the women hadn't showed up, would Pike have had sex with the Orion slave girl? Wow. That is a saved by the bell moment on the part of number one and Gilman Cult. Wow, or, that's a or, great or question. Not, or not saved by the bell. Yeah, 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 <laughs> I mean, totally. <laughs> a lot of people have been in a situation where they thought they were about to have a moment and then someone came in, you know. <laughs> right, right, yeah. <laughs> um, but they do show up. They show up in the cage. And now what we hear is that these are essentially other potential mates. 
The female you call number one has the superior mind and would produce highly intelligent children. Have we gotten to the point where uh, Vina says about uh, Major Barrett, I'd have more luck crossing him with a computer. And then Majel does this little half look, which I think is done a little bit as a kind of um, uh, an in joke, a meta joke a little bit in that moment. I, and I didn't I've never caught that till this watching it this time. And I don't know why I caught it this time. But when I caught it, I was like, oh, Majel did a nice job. Just a little like <laughs> it was brilliant. So I what, love what, one of the things Scott and I talked about when we went through the cage, which and I think this and I think, Scott, that you agreed. I think number one is Majel Barrett's best Star Trek role. I couldn't agree more. Oh. And watching her again, yes. uh, I, I think, you know, even after all these years and all the various uh, ways that Star Trek has changed and evolved with through, through all of the shows, even up to and including Discovery, mm-hmm. and you have a, a great character like, like uh, you know, played by Sonequa Martin-Green, Michael Burnham, mm-hmm. um, I still think that even by today's standards, the quality of the character of number one absolutely holds up and even by today's standards she is a she is a, an amazing character and a trailblazing character mm-hmm. and the fact that Rodbury had her there at the beginning but he also had Spock and the network said you can't keep them both so he kept Spock and he married number one <laughs> the other new arrival has considered you unreachable but now is realizing this has changed the factors in her favor are youth and strength Plus unusually strong female drives. Okay, now let me let me say something about those unusually strong female drives. <laughs> Clearly, I'm, I'm not going where you think I'm going with this, Johnny. But uh, where I am going it with it is in this portion of Star Trek, in the cage portion of Star Trek, they are setting up that the captain's yeoman has a thing for the captain. Yes. Now – Obviously, almost everybody except for Mr. Spock was recast when they went to the second pilot and went to series. So there's must have been something about that dynamic between the captain and the captain's yeoman and the affection between them, which has to be very, very, very much dialed back mm-hmm. that Roddenberry must have liked because that was something that he set up in the original series with Captain Kirk and Yeoman Rand. Yeah. And there were a couple episodes there, and we've talked about this at length on Enterprise Incidents, about the relationship between Kirk and Rand and how uh, you know her affection for him was more obvious than his for her, although his mm-hmm. for her was definitely, definitely there. And it was a shame that they never were able to sort of evolve that relationship further because Rand was, was uh, written out of the series. Mm-hmm. But it was a very interesting epiphany that I had watching the menagerie going, oh, I get it. Yeoman Colt is Yeoman Rand mm-hmm. and Kirk is Pike. Yeah, that's actually – it's the same thing I thought as well, that they certainly had an idea that this was something they wanted to explore with uh, with Yeoman Rand. And there are hints of it at times, uh, but then they don't fully – as you said, Scott, don't fully dial into it, and then eventually she's – written off the show but yeah that you could see they had an idea of keeping this somewhere this relationship at least or the hint of this possibility in the new version of the show one thread that is taken out is the thread of number one's attraction to captain pike mm-hmm. it's set mm-hmm. up when in on the show in the cage where at the very beginning he says to number one well i don't think of you as a woman and she has a look and then oh, there's yeah. a, a line that's missing from this scene which is when they introduce number one and that she has the superior brain, the keeper also says, Although she seems to lack emotion, this is largely a pretense. 
She often has fantasies involving you. But that is cut out of the cage. And while this is going on, Pike is trying to use what he learned, negative, primitive emotions, to lock them out. And their response to that is to torture him. What, what Another scene they cut, which I think is a good thing, is at this moment in the cage, we go back to the Enterprise and Spock says, we're leaving. Because <laughs> they were trying to bug out. That was a good one to cut. It's later on. Everyone's asleep and the keeper sneaks in through the hole and Pike wakes up, puts him on the ground and starts strangling him. And he turns into some giant monster. You stop the solution or I'll twist your head off. You know, so in many ways, Pike is smarter than Kirk, but in other ways, he's not as much of a people person as Kirk, or at least he's on Kirk's level in terms of intelligence. He well, finds things yeah. out his own way. Well, Pike uses his latest moment with the keeper to put his theory to rest because mm. he's got his phaser and he's got the keeper in a headlock. He points the phaser at the cage door. He fires the phaser. Nothing happens. Then he points to, I love you. It's a, it's a, he pulls his version of the Corbomite maneuver. Right. Because he says, right. I think I just blasted a, a hole through this wall and you're keeping us from seeing it. I'm going to test my theory out on your head right now. And then, <laughs> The Telosian reveals mm. that he did blow the hole through the wall. And I mean, obviously, the Corbomite maneuver was a much, much bigger, grander risk, but yeah. it is still because we only see Christopher Pike played by Jeffrey Hunter just this one time. That's his version of it. And they go through the door, but the transition, the transmission suddenly stops. And they're, we're back in the uh, uh, during the hearing, and the Telosians have stopped and they've desert, the, deserted Spock. And Spock is basically pleading, just wait, just wait, let's wait a little bit more time. Mm -hmm. And the Commodore says, I need your verdicts. And Pike says guilty, you know, Mendez says guilty. And Captain Kirk struggles to say the words. It hurts him so much. Guilty as charged. He is sentencing his loyal first officer and his friend. Mm -hmm. And this is after Spock defended him in court-martial. So this is where my criticisms of the envelope portion of the show exist, which mm. is, first of all, why did the transmission stop? And the reason it stopped is because we have to fill up some extra time. We need an act break. We want Kirk to say guilty. And this, remember in the last episode when we were talking about, and I said, I just had that moment of, ooh, Kirk versus Spock. Wouldn't that have been cool? Wouldn't it have been cool if we had seen somewhere in here Kirk talking to Scotty and saying, how can we stop these transmissions? We need to get control of the ship again. And it was something that Kirk did that caused the transmission to stop rather than it just stops so we can have this scene, which mm -hmm. is kind of how it feels to me. Mm -hmm. OK, so okay. we're in Act 4 and the actual Enterprise commanded by Kirk is now at Talos 4 and that brings us back to the story within the story where we're back on the surface with Pike and Vina and number one and Colt and the keeper. And the keeper basically says, okay. With the female of your choice, you will now begin carefully guided lives. And basically number one, number one makes this move, not the captain. She puts her laser because it's not called a phaser yet, but she puts her mm. phaser into the overall position overload position to basically sacrifice themselves because they would rather die than be forced to do what they're doing and to live as slaves. The customs and history of your race show a unique hatred of captivity. Even when it's pleasant and benevolent, you prefer death. 
This makes you too violent and dangerous a species for our needs. Do you, do you think this, just like a scientist, right? We're all intelligent, man, but just like a scientist, they had Vina and they had her reactions to being caged, her reactions to the illusion. She has nowhere else to go because we're about to find out her physical nature. But do you think they needed other human beings to be able to verify their hypothesis about human beings? So this is why they went through all this stuff with Pike, with uh, number one, with the yeoman there. Uh, that was the whole reason for all of this. So now that they have their information, they're om- they're reaffirming what Vina has probably felt or told them at times. You know, I'd rather die. You know, there are probably moments where she's said in, in, in exultation, like, I'd rather die. This is tearing me apart. I want to die. But she doesn't, obviously. And I wonder if this is uh, that moment when they're having that conversation. It reinforces this idea. Because the Talosian is so shocked. And the Keeper is so shocked. He's just like, I, I can't. I, this makes no sense to me. And it's like, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? Because you, we think we're giving you an illusion to live in. But in fact, the human nature, which is, it mirrors something you brought up earlier, Steve, the Matrix, right? Um, where Mr. Anderson, or no, sorry, where um, uh, Hugo Weaving's character says to. Um, Oh, no, no. It was the creator, the architect, says to him, we tried different iterations of the construct of the world, and we made everybody happy, and humans naturally rejected it because they, they don't believe people can be universally happy. And so it's so interesting how they have this idea of how they think human beings will react to things, and they have to learn that human beings have a natural... Um, desire to be free and a natural skepticism about everything. So I love that. Well, that, I mean, certainly you've gone on to one of the classic Star Trek themes, which is the anti-utopian is that we need struggle. We need pain. That's what we need in order to be human. Um, The, what, one of the interesting things I think, and, and the contrast between the cage and the menagerie that makes it so interesting is, well, how do we feel about the Telosians? Mm -hmm. Like, because like you brought up them, frame them as scientists. And that's a yes. perfectly reasonable thing. And I think that that's how I see them. That is part of what they are. But they are also people who are desperate, who are basically devoid of all emotions and mm. need the the humans in order to live emotional lives through them. And so yeah. in that sense, they're kind of parasites. And the balance between learning stuff like scientists and being mm. slavers who are going to live through your slaves uh, and I don't know where I stand. I don't know how I feel about the Telosians. Do you, you, you see them as slavers? Really? I'll tell well, you right of now. Of course, they're definitely they're they're what really? they're doing right. is they're they're they, not only are they putting people to slavery, they're having them have babies and putting them to slavery. Mm. Like that's but, their motive. Like I mean, stuff? that's what they they want to repopulate the planet with with, with human slaves. But well, also, okay. uh, all, right. all right, yeah. I mean, I I, I mean, I thought that was. I, I always thought I, that was the case. They're, I don't see, I know, I know, but I don't see them that way. I actually see them as uh, scientists who are trying to figure out the human species. And when this whole situation happens, they're awoken to what humans actually are, but they offer a paradise if you want it. And this paradise is not a paradise where they're being with slaves like we've seen in our American history, whipped and with with the you know things on. It's it's like you can live the utopian life if you want. You repopulating the planet, and in your mind, the illusion of this utopia will exist. So I don't see them necessarily as enslavers. I see your point of view, though. I, I, I just look, have I, never seen them that way. I I absolutely, especially when you get to this reveal of why mm. they wanted Pike to stay with Vina, uh, was. 
absolutely to repopulate the planet mm-hmm. and to enslave enslave the the, the population. They are absolutely okay. enslavers, and and slavery is. I mean, there's nothing subtle about it. This is slavery okay. has been going on for all of human history. You know, when you look at uh, you know uh, ancient Egypt, and when you look at uh, the 19th century, you know, with with mm-hmm. slavery in the United States. So the Tolosians are offering a manufactured form of paradise. Yeah. Yeah. And in every situation where Kirk's enterprise is offered a manufactured form of paradise, whether it's through Landrew uh, in Return of the Archons, through mm-hmm. Apollo in Who Mourns for Adonais, through the Spores in This Side of Paradise, and through Val on the Apple, Kirk says, no, <laughs> because <laughs> it is not a natural form of paradise. Yeah. It is a manufactured and manipulated form of paradise. Right. And it is such an overt form of paradise that even Kirk says, you know, we need to, we need challenges. We take away those challenges, we die. So there was a, there was a great speech here uh, that Pike could have really given, that Kirk would have given if it mm-hmm. was further along in the series. But it is still, it is still a trope that is used many, many times in a, in a very good way throughout all the Star Trek shows, not mm-hmm. just the original series. But yeah. uh, I definitely think the Tolosians are enslavers. Steve, agree, disagree? So I un- completely understand John's point because this is a really, really weird form of enslavement because it is, as you say, on some levels, offering you paradise. Live in any world you want, mm-hmm. eat any food you want, be with any woman you want, have any experience you want. Sounds like paradise. But it is one in which they want them to behave in a certain way. Mm -hmm. You must mate with this person. You you must eat this food. You must do what I say. And like in slavery, torture is involved. If you do not comply with the master's wishes, you will be tortured. Well, and this is what Mm -hmm. I think makes the cage slash the menagerie such an anomalous thing, which is, again, Mm -hmm. I go to. How do we feel about the Telosians, you know? <laughs> like, is this going to be a cool thing? Let's get back to the ship. I can't. I can't go with you. And of course, what we see is the reason the Vena cannot go on the Enterprise, which is that she is put together incorrectly. She's unhealthy. Yeah. She, the only way for her to live with the illusion of beauty is to stay on the planet. And one another one of the differences is in the cage. She goes up the rocks with an illusion version of Captain Pike. And in in the menagerie, she has her illusion of beauty again, but is alone. When Pike goes back to the Enterprise and, you know, number one's like, what about Vina? Isn't she coming with us? No, and I agreed with her reasons. But he he keeps it to himself. Like, I don't know if he, he must have told like Spock about it at some point, because that's when Spock, after Pike was hurt, got the idea to bring Pike to Talos for and work with the Telosians in that capacity. But the the look on Kirk's face, like when he is in the briefing room during the hearing and he realizes everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. And then he turns to the Commodore. Commodore, don't you think that and the Commodore disappears? Like the whole big revelation, like everything comes to the fore at this moment. And Kirk realizes everything that has happened, uh, why it's happened, the lengths that which Spock went through to bring his former captain back and why. Mr. Spock, even if regulations are explicit, you could have come to me and explained. Ask you to face the death penalty too. One of us was enough, Captain. 
the heart of this two-part series is right there at this moment, and it is beating very strong. I think Nimoy's performance at that moment is so good because you see he's so world weary, I think, Mm -hmm. and you see what he's been carrying. He's been carrying the burden of I might have to destroy this relationship with the captain I love in order to save the life of the other captain that I feel a deep sense of loyalty to. Mm -hmm. And that pressure of that decision, he's finally made it to the end. Mm -hmm. I I think it's an amazing moment. I agree. Um, So here's my question. If you were Captain Pike, yeah, at the time of the menagerie and captured yeah. by the Telosians, mm-hmm. would you stay with them? No. If you were Captain Pike in the chair, would you stay with the Telosians? Absolutely. And I'll tell you something real quick too. I've been. Uh, we just did on the top ten, uh, the top ten films about uh, elderly ensemble cast or elderly leads, right? And I rewatched Away from Her, one of the most devastating movies. I love that movie. Right? It's it's mm-hmm. brilliant, Scott. Beautiful about, movie about Alzheimer's. And I mm-hmm. thought to myself, and I might get emotional here. I love my girlfriend so much, and I'm going to you know the lady out. I love her to pieces. If something was to happen to her like that, or if I was to lose her in some way, I'll be honest with you. I would feel like Captain Pike in the chair, having spent so long of my life trying to find someone to spend the rest of my life with. And I found the perfect one that I would want to lose myself in um, a fake reality for the rest of my life. Uh, Like the Matrix does, like um, we see in the upgrade, this idea that if, if what he is here on earth is no longer keeping you here on earth, creating an illusion where you can live with that person that you've always wanted to live with until your body actually dies in your mind to live in that world and fool yourself that that world is real, I would take it in a heartbeat if I was in Captain Pike's situation. I would. Not even a question. If I'm on Talos 4 at the beginning, absolutely not. I would not want to be a prisoner like that, even if I was living out the, 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 the fantasies of all my illusions, because you know what? That would get old <laughs> because I would run out of things to do and I would not be living a real life. I mean, that's yeah. the, I would, I want to be in the reality, but the other side of your question there, like what if I was Pike in the menagerie and I had a chance to live out the rest of my life unfettered by my physical disabilities? Yes, I would absolutely do that because it, it, it may not be reality, but I would still have a quality of life that's better than the one that I had. There's no question for me if I'm in that chair, I'm going to go, I want to be with the Telosians. The other one is I wish there was a way I could say to the Telosians, hey, Keeper, can we make a deal? Can I be here like a couple of months a year? Like, I'll totally hang out here, have sex with the Orion girl, have, you know, go off on crazy adventures, have some fun, but then actually leave and go accomplish things because I actually like work. I like challenges. I like to accomplish things. And living in a world where that doesn't exist would get real old real quick. But I'd be happy to visit. You could read my emotions and we could have some fun. And then I can say, see what, send someone else and you could hang out with them. Let's make a deal, Mr. Keeper. <laughs> Absolutely. Sure. Now, listen, I, I just think that uh, the menagerie is a turning point. It is a division between the Star Trek that came before and the Star Trek that will come after uh, because it was uh, right after this episode that the tone of Star Trek would change. And again, that all that's all Gene Kuhn. You know, he's coming in. He's making Star Trek his own by defining the characters, adding more levity. Uh, adding in his own creations, whether it's the Klingons and Khan and the Starfleet and the United Federation of Planets. So 
uh, it feels like a very, very different show. And it's almost like the, it's so great that this two-part episode that looks back on the Star Trek that really started it all production-wise marks, marks the end of the beginning for Star Trek because mm-hmm. what was the, the best was truly yet to come. So, John, what are your what are your final thoughts on the menagerie? I think it's one of the most signature um, moments in Star Trek, not just episodes. And of course, as, as Scott and Steve mentioned, it's the first two parter, just moments. I think this is where the show turned the corner. I think this is where the show showed you what it was really capable of and what it could really explore and what its point of view was and what they were going for by going back to the past to show you where they started or where, what they had initially thought Star Trek was going to be and then showing you what it became 11 episodes into the first season. It, it's, a, it's just a brilliant uh, showcase for what the show would become. And as I mentioned in the way in the beginning of the part one, it is this, the, the, episode, the two episodes that made me fall in love with Star Trek and I've never fallen out of love with Star Trek ever since since great performances all around great discussions about um, what it, what this all about all the concepts that are presented uh, throughout the menagerie. And at the end of the day, the differences between Kirk as a, as a captain and Pike as a captain, but the love that Kirk or the respect Kirk has as well as love for Pike is there when he calls him Chris, right? No one else calls him Chris. And there's something about that moment where he's leaning in, right? There is an acceptance because you say, well, they're enslavers. I get that, but they're still uh, going to receive Captain Pike and they're going to give him a new life. And there's a magnanimous, uh, magnanimity to that, in my opinion, that I love and respect about uh, uh, this, uh, these two episodes of the menagerie. And, um, It'll never stop being my favorite episode of Star Trek. It just won't. I love it to pieces. Here are my final thoughts on this episode. I think I like it the least of the three of us. We we, we discussed in incredible detail my feelings about the cage. I feel like the envelope episode could have been so much more. I guess that's my, if there's so many times where it feels like we're filling space we're doing exposition. We really, really want to use the, the footage of the cage. And this is how we figured out how to do it. And so for me, it's like, I wish I had seen Kirk be more active. I wish I had seen more engagement of the ideas of what it's like for Pike in the chair. I wish we had more character in terms of Spock's relationship with Pike outside of the flashbacks. But what we do have is the engagement in some really interesting ideas, the exploration of real Star Trek thoughts of captivity and utopia and fantasy versus reality. And I really do enjoy those, but part of me would just imagine something a little more. You know, listen, I completely agree with you about the shortcomings of the, of the, of the envelope portion, because for the most part, our hero, our main hero, Captain Kirk is very passive and reactive. And they spend most of the time sitting, watching TV basically. So you know, it's not a it's not a typical Star Trek episode by any measure, but I think the fact that the way that Gene Roddenberry was able to take the unused pilot and to make really great use out of it with an overall two part episode that is is extremely emotional, and because it was both creative and practical to save money and save time, I think the fact that the episode is as strong as it is is a is a miracle in itself. So. 
Uh, it's, you know, it's not the episode or the two parts that I go back and watch over and over again, because uh, sometimes I just want to watch the cage and I do. Yeah. But I think that for what their needs were, uh, he did the best possible thing he could. And Desi was saved some money in the process to help with their deficit spending. And, uh, you know, it was a win-win all the way. But yeah. I do agree with what you said about it. Now, looking back on the menagerie, Malachi Throne, who played Commodore Mendez, said, and I quote, it was hard to get a smile out of Leonard when he was in character. Of course, with Leonard, it was hard to get a smile out of him anyway. He does have a sense of humor, but when he works, he's very serious. Now, Shatner was the opposite. Bill was fun, but he was also forthright and adamant about everything because that was his character. And that kind of goes along with a lot of guest stars have said about Shatner and Nimoy that Nimoy was very to himself and very in character, even when the cameras were off, while Shatner was a lot of fun and this ball of energy. And Sean Kenny, who played Captain Pike in the envelope portion of the menagerie, said, It was a thrill to be in the show. It was my first film job, and I received top billing in the credits. I'm proud of it because the story said so much, and it was taken so, how shall I say it, emotionally by so many people. Of course, he is referencing the diehard Trekkers. As one more thing I wanted to say, Scott, we have now done, this is, I believe, our 17th episode of Enterprise Incidents. At 16 episodes, we crossed the 20% mark. We have now talked about one-fifth of the original series. Uh, that, I got to tell you, Steve, I was thinking about that when I was doing my notes, that, wow, this is our 17th discussion, and we're just really hitting our stride with this. And again, the reactions we've been getting from the, 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 the fans who have been listening to us on whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, uh, Spotify, even the YouTube portion, uh, Google Podcasts, all, all the ways that people have found Enterprise Incidents and have recommended Enterprise Incidents to other people, which obviously we very much appreciate. But I just think that because the best was yet to come for Star Trek, I think it's safe to say that the best is yet to come with Enterprise Incidents, especially when we keep getting bigger guests. That's absolutely true. And Scott, you already mentioned all the places you can subscribe to the show. Leave your comments on YouTube. You guys have left some amazing reviews on iTunes. Keep it up. They're fantastic if you're enjoying the show. It's the number one thing you can do to help us out. On our Facebook page, we are going to post the question about whether or not Pike actually would have had sex with Vina as the Orion slave girl. And maybe when we'd like to find out, would you stay with the Telosians, either as Pike who's healthy or Pike in the chair? Um, and of course, you can follow the show at Enterprise Incidents on Instagram, on Enter Incidents on Twitter. You can follow me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris One on Instagram. Scott, what about you? You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Movie Mance. You can check out my YouTube page for all my film content, which is just it's just Scott Mance on YouTube. So, John, if yes. people wanted to reach you on the internet, in social media. How would they go about doing that? Well, I'm on Talos 4. No, uh, you, can, you, can, you can find me at the Roca Says on Twitter and on Instagram. And uh, please head on over to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca Says. I hope I'll be getting these two gentlemen to come on again and be guests on some of my shows there in the future. I love having both of them on there. And there's so much great content and new content we're putting on there as well. And of course, don't forget the Top 10 and uh, the Geek Buddies podcast that I do. And uh, I want to send a special thank 
thank you to both Scott Manson and Steve Morris for having me on here. I love Star Trek. I rarely get to dive in deep as much as I do with you two. So thank you very much for having me. And thanks to everybody who's listened. Oh, the pleasure is definitely ours, Steve uh, and John. I mean, doing this with you, uh, you know, look, uh, John, if it wasn't for you, I never would have met Steve. So true. Uh, it is I who should be thanking you. So right. I'm very, very grateful for that because the Enterprise Incidents has just been just such a great, great joy mm-hmm. for me. You can tell. John, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I can't wait to talk to you in a day or two, probably for the Cinephiles. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> Thanks, guys. And you can be sure to join us for the very next episode of Enterprise Incidents. You know, it's been, uh, you know, the year we've been out in space so far, it's been, it's been a lot of work. Man, we need a break. How about some shore leave? So excited about that. Cannot wait. Cannot wait for Shirley because I'll tell you, if there is any episode that really stands out from the rest of the series for being so different in so many ways, this is the one. We cannot wait to do our deep dive on Shirley. Join us on the next episode of Enterprise Incidents. And until then, keep going boldly. Keep going boldly.